0: normally, uh, I, I tend to lean more preaching on Sunday mornings and teaching, but this morning I'm going to put on my teacher's cap, if that's okay with you. I'm going to kind of copy our lead pastor Phil and, uh, I'm going to do more teaching this morning and I hope you guys are okay with that. How many are okay with that? You okay? Good. All right. The rest of you just hold on and bear it, I guess. (laughs) Wow, that was like three people were excited about. They're like, I guess we have to learn something this morning. Wow. Uh, We are in the middle of this series called The Inspired Church. The Inspired Church. And as Pastor Phil said, it's not because we're called Inspired Church, but it's really because uh, when we were in shelter in place, we were disembodied for so long that a lot of us kind of lost our North Star. We kind of lost the identity of, of what church is and, and what church is not. Um, and so as we are regathering, the Lord really put uh, impressed it on Pastor Phil's heart that we need to reorient our hearts on what God says the church is versus what uh, we may have experienced or seen and what we kind of describe the church to be. And so uh, a few weeks ago, he talked about the reality that we are a community of confessors gathered together to declare the glory of the gospel. In fact, I just want to quote Pastor Phil uh, from about three weeks ago, and he says this. He says, have you ever wondered why does the church exist? Is the church called maybe to protect the planet? Are we like God's cosmic environmentalists protecting his creation? Or maybe the church is called to build hospitals and establish orphanages and provide humanitarian relief. Or maybe the church is called to intervene against oppressive regimes and governments and even pick up arms and wage wars on behalf of those who have been oppressed. Is this what the church is called to do? You guys remember Pastor Phil saying that? It was poignant questions because I think the reality is, is if we were to go around and ask each person what you think the church is here for, we would get various responses and various answers. But hopefully over the last three weeks, if you've been able to join us in this series, and if not, I really urge you to go to our YouTube channel or podcast and re- and listen to the messages because we've covered a lot of great stuff. But hopefully you've began to sort of have a, a revision for what the church is. Church is. In fact, I've been hearing stories at our hangouts and our and our meetups that we've been having on Sunday mornings. And in these meetups, we've been hearing I've been hearing all sorts of people talking about how crazy this series has been for them, and how it's sort of uh, reframed, revisioned, even got rid of um, some some skewed vi- vi- visions and versions of what they thought the church should be. And so I hope that uh, uh, by now you're starting to get a portrait of, uh, of what this thing is called the church, and that it isn't man's definition or idea, but it is Christ Jesus. In fact, we started this series off by a message titled, Jesus is the building. Then we went and we talked about the mission of the church. Then last Sunday, Pastor Phil talked about the ministry of membership. And then today I'm talking about sacramental worship. Sacramental worship. And so the title of this message this morning is Water, Wine, and Worship. Water, wine, y'all perked up when I said wine, didn't it you? I heard you. <laughs> and worship. <laughs> Water, wine, and worship. Where you're gonna find the assignment this morning is actually, is actually in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, who takes his name in vain. Now, for some of you, you might have heard, uh, re- are reading that passage, and you're thinking, what does that have to do with sacraments of the church? And you'll find out in just a moment. But first, what I want to do is I kind of wanted to define that word sacrament. It's not like it's something we just go around saying every day. And, and so, actually, the word sacrament isn't a biblical word, but it's a word that entered theological uh, kind of language via the Latin Vulgate, and it literally means Something sacred. Something sacred. In fact, Augustine defined the sacraments as this, as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And so he made it possible for people then to think of them uh, sort of subsequently in terms of signs or symbols. Signs or symbols. External elements which point to a reality that is beyond themselves. And it's important that we understand that these signs or symbols, whether it be water for water baptism or a cracker and juice for Holy Communion, that these signs point to a greater reality. And that reality is different from and more significant than itself. So these are signs that point to a greater reality, reality that is more significant from the sign itself, right? In other words, if we put that down in in sort of the most elementary way of thinking about it, we don't imagine that because we see a sign on the highway pointing to Chicago that we've actually arrived at Chicago, right? Right. If it says Chicago this way, we don't park by the sign and say, well, I'm here, right? 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 And so we all have seen a sign that is pointing to a reality beyond itself. So watch this. You can write this down. In these signs, the reality to which they point is displayed, not dispensed. The reality in which they point is displayed, not dispensed. In other words, the blessing which is promised in the sacraments is not mechanically or automatically conveyed in them. And that's why it's it's possible to sort of sit on the fringes of uh, of church and kind of look at something like water baptism or Holy Communion and say, well, I don't really understand why people are all passionate about this. Now, in pre-Reformation church, there were actually a number of sacraments. But what happened was, uh, in the Reformation, they said, well, wait a minute, uh, what we're seeing is we're seeing a lot of sort of man tradition that's being elevated to having the same authority as Scripture. And so, what the, and so part of what the Reformers did is, hey, well, let, let, let's take away man-made tradition for a minute and let's look at just what it was that the Bible actually said. And when you look at all the sacraments that the church were doing at the time, um, and it, there was actually more than seven, but eventually it became seven. Um, they said, well, out of these seven, there's actually only two, two sacraments that the Bible uh, actually says is vital for what we do. Two sacraments. And, they, and, and these have been given by the word of Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus himself instituted both of these. One was on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And there it's recorded in the gospel that we had the last supper, what we call the Lord's table. And then on the other occasion was on the eve of his ascension, when he gave his followers the responsibility to go into the world and preach the gospel to go and make disciples, but to baptize people in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus instituted these two sacraments. And so these are the two sacraments that we honor, that we, uh, that we participate in to this day. Now there was another element in church history to the sacraments that's very important, that even today gets confused, which is this. Not just the number of sacraments, was there a confusion, but the nature of the sacraments, there was a confusion. And what I mean by nature is that there is this notion that still is firmly held and embedded in the minds of many people today that there is some sort of mystical superstition in both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we need to understand that in Uh, connection with what is happening in the gospels, the bread, the wine, the water, that all these things really are is bread, wine, and water. That's it. So when you get baptized in water, the water isn't any, it's just tap water. That's all it is. Maybe a little chlorine in it, something like that. That's all it is. It's not holy water. It's just tap water. When you eat the bread and the wine or or drink the cracker and the juice, that's what it is. It's a cracker and it's juice. It does not get transformed into anything. There's nothing mystical about it. And to attach significance beyond these symbols is actually to confuse the reality of the symbol. And it's to end up in very dreadful positions. All right? So I just want to talk about that for just a moment as we, as we begin to say, well, what are sacraments? Well, sacraments are water baptism and holy communion, and these are symbols, signs, shadows that point to a, a greater reality, a greater reality. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's great, but if these things are not mandatory for salvation, right, which the thief of the cross is probably very grateful for that, because when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he looks to the thief and he says to the thief, this day you'll be with me in paradise, what he doesn't say is, well, this day, if you can somehow get off there and go get baptized and take communion, then you'll be with me in paradise, right? He doesn't say that. So you're saying, well, wait a minute, if, if, these, things, if these things do not bring salvation to us, then why do them? Well, obviously that's the point of this message and I'm going to show you, but I'll give you the answer up front, all right? No big secret reveals. You ready? Here here it is. We do not practice these ordinances to be saved, but because we are saved. We do not practice these ordinances in order to be saved, but because we are saved. Amen? Amen. Let's go back to our text for just a moment. Exodus chapter 20 says this, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's gonna be very important. Out of the land of Egypt, and out of the house of slavery. When you look at what happened in Egypt and the Exodus, you actually see signs and shadows of the sacraments. You see signs and shadows of the sacraments. You see the blood of lambs that's put on the doorposts. You see the children of Israel going through the Red Sea. You've seen signs and shadows of these sacraments. He says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands for those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, I wish I had time to break down. This is part of the 10 commandments and really the 10 commandments aren't really regulations of God, but more reflections of him. But what I will say this, and I'll ask this question, what does it mean to take the name of the Lord? What does it mean to take the name of the Lord? Well, let me just say this, that uh, Becca's best, day ever in her life was when she married me. Her best day. Just kidding. It was our best day. We love it. Uh, But when when we got married, what what ended up happening is this thing where she takes on my last name. So she goes from being Cardenas, and this is like culture shock, to being a pethy bridge, all right? Her family wasn't ready for that. (laughs) But what ends up happening is everything changes, she has to go and fill out documents and, and next thing you know, her ID changes. Um, uh, how she's addressed in the mail changes. Um, what, what her credit score looks like with the name on it now changes, right? Everything begins to change. Even how she is addressed, even how people talk to her and they, and they call out her name. If she's waiting for something and they say, and they begin to call her, they, they, they don't say Rebecca Cardenas, they say Rebecca Pethybridge. Because she has now taken on my name, he's taking on my name because we got married. And in the same way, when we are saved, we, we sort of take on the name of Jesus. See, he died in our name so we could live in his. We, we take on his name. The Bible says we are ambassadors. What that means is it's just an old term that basically meant that when there were kings, he would have these ambassadors and they would wear these rings with symbols on them. And, and because of that, they could almost speak for him on his behalf. They, they would speak in the name of the king. And, and, and the Bible says we are ambassadors, that, that, that we now carry his name. Right. That now when the world looks at us, what, what they really look at is Christ. Now, if that doesn't scare you a little bit, it should. If that doesn't make you feel unworthy, it should, right? But also when we stand before the father, when he looks at us, he sees the name of his son. You see? Name of his son. In other words, he came so we could live in his name. In other words, he came to marry us. He came to marry us. To marry us. Now, before I get too ahead of myself, let me just show you. Remember the very first public miracle that Jesus did? Remember that? He turned water into what? Yeah, he turned water into wine. Everybody got excited again. Turned water into wine. I feel like every time I say wine, people are like, yes. I'll serve that Jesus, um, <laughs> water into wine, right? And, and if you don't remember the story, basically he was invited to this wedding and everybody was there and uh, it, all of a sudden, you know, this wedding's going on and they ran out of wine. And so Jesus' mom comes to him and says, Jesus, uh, they ran out of wine, right? And, and, and look what it says in John chapter two, it says, and Jesus' and disciples had also been invited to the wedding When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. He says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. You see that? My hour, see that word, hour? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you're not familiar with biblical uh, language, uh, then you might be thinking, well, what he's talking about here is that his time to perform public miracles, uh, so people can know, oh, there's something different about this guy, that, that that time hasn't come. But actually, that's not what he's saying here at all, because he's very specific when he says, my hour has not come. Whenever the New Testament uses the phrase hour, well, it's always talking about His death. His death. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't really make sense, Pastor Roger. She's saying, listen, the, the, the wedding you know, has run out of wine. We, we need more wine. Jesus, uh, can you do something about it? You know." And, and Jesus basically says, it's not my time to die yet. That's his response. Now, why would he respond in that way? Why in the world is he talking about his death? That doesn't seem germane to the fact that this wedding has ran out of wine. Well, what commentators will say is that Jesus is actually thinking of something else. He's thinking, Have you ever been in a place, but your mind's thinking about something else? It's probably happening right now, right? <laughs> thinking about what's for lunch and where you're going to go and all that, right? It happens, it happens, right? And so that's what's happening here. In fact, look what Tim Keller says, quote, he says this, at the wedding of Cain and Jesus's mind is somewhere else. He's thinking about two things, his death and his wedding, his death and his wedding. Oh, wait a minute. What do you mean his wedding? What are we talking about? Are we Are getting into some sort of like, you know, crazy secret, you know, code that, that the Bible taught? No, 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 no. We're, we're talking about his wedding his wedding. In other words, we're talking about, he's thinking about the marriage supper of the lamb, the the wedding feast that is to come, that one day all of the saints, everybody who is saved, everybody who calls himself a Christian, that that we will all gather together for this wedding feast, this marriage supper of the lamb. See, the Old Testament tells us that prophets for hundreds of years had said that God, that the God of the Bible didn't simply want to just relate to us as kings and subjects, that he doesn't want to just rule us, that he doesn't want to just relate to us as shepherd and sheep, right? He he doesn't want to just do that, but, but, but he actually wants to relate to something greater, and not even as father and children. Now, even though all those are real realities, but not even as father, there's something else he also wants to relate to us as. We're told again and again in the Bible that God wants to relate to us as husband and wife. He wants to know us and love us and unite with us as profoundly as a husband to a wife. Therefore, all through the Old Testament, God continually characterizes himself as a bridegroom. The bridegroom of the people who give themselves to him as a bride does to her husband. We know Jesus Christ had taken that into his own consciousness. In fact, in the book of Matthew, he says this. They went up to him, they said, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus had the audacity to say this. He says, Do the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still with them? The bridegroom. He, he's calling himself the bridegroom. Well, then who's the bride? Well, the gospel writer of John at the end of the book of Revelation describes for us what Jesus is thinking on that wedding day. Who's the bride? At the end of Revelation, he says this. He says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a, as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. The church is his bride. The church, church, is his bride. See, and so what Jesus is thinking about is his wedding day. He's thinking about the day in which people will say, all that I am, all that I have, I give to you. Now, with that in mind, when Mary told Jesus, listen, the wine is gone, and Jesus said, no, you know, it's it's not as though he said, no, it's not time for me to do a miracle. And then after a few minutes, he thought about it. He said, well, okay, all right, you twisted my arm. Guess I'll do it. No, this is the greatest movement leader in history of the world. Things are calculated. Things are thought through. And so actually what we see here at the wedding of Canaan is again, shadows and signs of both sacraments. Right, right. Baptism and communion, water and wine. Right. There are shadows and symbols of both, of both sacraments. And it really can be narrowed down to three things. You guys ready for these three things? Ready? Number one, a symbol of covenant relationship. Number two, a symbol of covenant renewal. And number three, a symbol of covenant community. Those three things. Those three things. So let's start with the first one quickly. Number one, a symbol of covenant relationship. So what does Jesus do next in the story at the, way to, at the wedding of Canaan? Well, what he does is he goes and he tells the staff there to go and get some buckets and begin to get some water and pour them into these huge ceremonial jars. These huge ceremonial jars. But they're not just regular ceremonial jars. He says pour them in these ceremonial washing jars. These were jars that, that they would use to, to wash themselves. To, to, to make themselves clean. These again are shadows. This points to a shadow of something to come, which will point to another shadow of something to come, which is representing in baptism, in baptism. Now, baptism does not actually wash our sins away right? Just like in the temple when the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would have to wash himself first to be clean. It's not like when he washed himself, all of a sudden now he has no sin in his life because there was something about the water that somehow you know, dripped into his soul and now his soul is pure. No, it's symbols. It's signs. And baptism is the same way. How many of you guys remember that movie Nacho Libre? Anybody remember the movie Nacho Libre? Yeah? Okay. Well, anyway. So what happens with Nacho Libre is, is uh, there's this character, and what he wants to do is he wants to be like this wrestler, and uh, he has this friend, and, 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 and basically, uh, he is this Catholic monk. He's a Catholic monk, but um, in secret, he wants to wrestle. And so under his, monk, his monkly garb, he has like this wrestler's outfit on. And so the whole movie is basically about how he goes and he, he wants to be a wrestler and, and, and all this other stuff. And, and, uh, and, but, but he's trying to be Catholic. He's trying to be holy. He's trying to be, you know, good for, for, for God. And, and then he meets uh, what would eventually be his sidekick. And, and during one wrestling match, they kept losing and losing. And, and so he comes out and he, he tells his partner there, he says, you know what, I'm, I'm worried about your soul because why don't you want to be baptized? And his partner said, well, I don't want to be baptized because I believe in science. And then if you remember the movie, Nacho goes and he gets a bowl of water and he places it in front of his friend's head and dunks his friend's head in the water. And he says, there, you've been baptized. Now your soul is cleansed. (laughs) Well, it doesn't exactly work that way. Baptism is not that. Well, then what is baptism? Well, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. It's a few things. It's a public declaration to the covenant relationship you have with Christ. In in many ways, it's like the wedding ring that I wear, right? Now, this wedding ring doesn't make me married at all. It's not like I have it on, now I'm married, and oh, I took it off. I'm not married anymore. I'm back on the market. Oh, 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 wait, 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 I put it back on. Sorry, ladies. I know you got excited for a minute. (laughs) The ring itself does it make me married or not married? Right? No, but but what it does is it's an hour. Can you imagine if I would have proposed to Becca and if I would have said this to Becca? If I said, "Babe, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. All you know, all that good romantic stuff." And, 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 and I'm going to propose this. Just one thing though. Um, after we get married, I, I don't want to wear a wedding ring. Um, I, I actually, I don't want to hold your hand in public. I don't want to kiss you in public. I don't want to put my arms around you in public. I I don't want to do anything in public that would make it look as though we're married. Will you marry me? What, What do you imagine her answer to be? But see, when we say that we're Christians, but we don't want to get baptized in water, what are we saying? What we're saying is I don't want to show publicly this secret relationship that I have. You want to privatize it. Write this down. The real reason you want to privatize your faith, why, is because it keeps you in control. Because it keeps you in control. So baptism is a public declaration of a covenant relationship you have with Christ. But it's not just that. It's also, it's an order. It's a command. It's a command. It's not, it's not just, well, when you go around, feel like it, if you ever get around to it. Jesus doesn't say that. It's a command. It's an act of obedience to see if Jesus Christ is just your hero or if he's your Lord. If he's just your hero or if he's your Lord. And there's a difference. There's a difference because uh, if he's just our hero, well, we don't mind if he saves us from burning buildings, saves us from our problems, from hardships. We don't, mind. yes, we wanted to, yep, do that. Heal me from, from cancer and, and, and fix my debt and give me a house and fix my wife and my kids and, and fix my husband and, and fix everybody, I mean, just to come on, save me. Save me from the burning bill. You know, you're my hero, you're my savior, you can save me. But the minute he becomes Lord, we put a halt. We say, whoa, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can save me, but you can't tell me how to live. And what, and what obedience and baptism does is it shows, no, God, uh, my yes to you is a yes through and through. Mm, you see? It's, a, you, it's not just you're my hero, but you are the Lord of my heart. You're the Lord of my heart. Now, what's crazy about baptism is even Jesus was baptized. Even Je- now, why did Jesus have to be baptized? Well, this is why, because central to Jesus's purpose in being the savior of the world is his own faithful obedience to the father. The book of Philippians, the book of Romans tells us that he was obedient even to the point of death. In other words, when Jesus Christ came, he came as truly God, and he came as truly man, and he showed us, he demonstrated to us what it is to lay your will at the feet of the Father, what it is to be obedient to the Father. Now, for us Westerners, that's difficult to swallow because we have been inundated with the narrative that individualism and self-dependency is what matters, that the individual is all that. Nothing can trump the individual, Nothing can trump the individual. That's why when it comes to morality, sexuality, whatever, it's all about, well, what do you as an individual say it is? And nobody can trump that. But see, watch this. The obedience of water baptism breaks the facade of false self-sufficiency and interdependence. It pushes against the idol that you are God and proclaims the reality that your life is no longer your own. you shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Now see, what happens is, is if you are claiming to be a Christian, but you don't want to be baptized in water, then what you're doing is you're actually taking the, name, the, Lord, the Lord's name in vain. See, for many of us, we grew up thinking that taking the Lord's name in vain meant saying like OMG or something, or something to that effect. But really what it means is if Becca were to take my name, take my name, add her name, Rebecca Bridge, but then not do anything to live as though she's married to me, she would then be taking my name in vain. Our marriage would be purposeless. When you say no to water baptism, you are now taking the Lord's name in vain. How many of y'all want to sign up for baptism now? Y'all, can you put that QR code back up on the screen? That's good. Why? Because what it represents, the water doesn't do anything, but what it represents is the ring. What it represents is is the covenant relationship that you have in your heart with Jesus Christ. Covenant relationship. Wow. While the water is a symbol of covenant relationship, The wine is a symbol of covenant renewal. Jesus turned water into wine. Covenant renewal. See, when Jesus turned water into wine, it it wasn't just any old type of wine. No, no, no. The Bible says it was the best wine. Like the best wine ever. The most refined. The most celebratory. The most sophisticated wine. Right? Don't we use those words for... People who drink wine, that describe wine. This is sophisticated. This is, right? Okay. I'm I'm over here doing my, okay. (laughs) Now listen, Mary says this. Mary goes up to him and says, uh, you know, uh, look, they, they need wine for the wedding feast. And he says, it's not my time to die yet. Now it seems like a non sequitur, unless you realize that he's looking into the future of something which is present as a parable or a pattern. Of course, he's not talking about this wine. He doesn't have to die to create this wine. Of course, he's not talking about this wedding feast. He doesn't have to die to to do anything about this wedding feast, right? But he's thinking about the wedding feast of the lamb, the wedding feast of the future. And how is he gonna provide wine for that feast? Well, how he provides wine for that feast is through the cross. And through was spilled blood. Amen. See, it couldn't be more clear. I mean, it points back to Egypt. In Egypt, what were one of the plagues? Water into uh, water into blood, right? Think about it. It, it, it intersects so perfectly. And, and when Jesus was sitting down and having what they call the last supper, this was a Passover meal that he was having with his disciples. And, and that wasn't irregular. That was a normative thing that, that you would have a Passover meal that was part of, uh, uh, of, of the religious heritage of that day is, is you would come together and you would eat a meal and it would be in remembrance of Passover. Passover was when uh, the people of God were slaves in Egypt and God was sending plagues. He kept sending plagues to Egypt because he wanted his people to be free. And so he sent the final plague, which was the death angel. You guys remember that? And what does the death angel do? The death angel went around all of Egypt and every firstborn son... Every firstborn son, so in the family, whoever was the firstborn son, so maybe it was a baby, maybe it was a 30-year-old, maybe it was an 80-year-old. If you were the firstborn son, you'd be dead. The death angel came and killed the firstborn son of everybody in Egypt. But for God's people, what God instructed them to do is, listen, you're going to take a lamb You're going to sacrifice the lamb. You're going to take the blood of that lamb and put on the doorpost. So when the so when the um, death angel comes through Egypt, when it sees the the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, it'll pass over your house and your house won't be touched. So ever since then, they started doing these Passover meals. So what would happen? They'd eat the meal, then they'd stand up after it was done, and somebody would say something about the meal. And they'd say, remember uh, the Passover lamb? And they'd start talking about all the parts and pieces. And so what they would do is they would pick up the bread, and they would talk about what this bread represents. So in the Last Supper, what does Jesus do? All their disciples are there. They're gathered together. They're having the Passover meal. Jesus stands up to begin to talk about Passover. Very normal, and so he picks up the bread and he says, this bread represents not the lamb. That's what they were expecting him to say. He says, this bread represents my body. It represents me. What? What do you mean, Jesus? This bread represents me. He picks up the cup and he says, this wine Represents my blood. Not the lamb's blood that happened, you know, thousands of years ago in Egypt. Not those blood. Not all the lamb's bloods that happened throughout all the century. No, no. This blood, or this wine, represents my blood. You see the shadow versus the reality. And you never want to mix up the shadow versus versus the reality. Can you imagine when Becca came down the aisle and we we're there to get married and, 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 and the minister says, okay, now go ahead. You may kiss the bride. If I got on the ground and I started kissing her shadow, how ridiculous would that be? Because you don't ever want to mix the shadow for the, for the reality. And so, what's happening is this: is that what Jesus is offering, what Jesus is investing in us, is not just a religious, rigorous, rule-keeping ritual, but He's inviting us to a wedding feast. See, when we take the the, the cracker and the juice, it, it is symbolic of the wedding feast that is to come. When, when, when we and it points back to the death of the cross. When we come to the Lord's table and take holy communion, communion, it is a covenant. Renewal. What do you mean by that? Pastor Roger, you keep saying covenant, covenant. What do you mean by covenant? Well, there's a new covenant that was established, and and basically what it is is this, is is, it's where we say, okay, the covenant is God will be our God and we will be his people. But actually, the covenant is something even deeper than that. That's more like a contract. What the covenant actually is, is God saying, I'm gonna be your God, and you're going to be my people. And even when you're not being my people, I will still be your God. Mm, that's so good. Even when you're not acting like my people, I'll still be your God. Even when you fail and you fall and you come short, I'll still be your God. And, 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 and so what, what do you do when, uh, at renewal? When you go to renew your wedding vows, what's the point of renewing a wedding vow? It's to remember the vow. Well, Throughout the passage, what does Jesus say? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Eat this bread in remembrance of me. Drink this cup in remembrance of me. And as often as you do this, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of me. What are we doing? We are remembering the covenant. We are remembering the covenant. Because the truth is we forget. We fail. We fall short. But if you say, well, I don't want to get baptized in water. And I don't wanna take communion. And here's why I don't wanna do those things is because, well, I'm not perfect. I sin. I'm not worthy of it. You know, when you say that, do you know what you're doing? You've bought into the lie. You've bought into the lie. The lie that says this, that when somebody looks at the world, when somebody looks at society and says, you know what's actually wrong with society is that society's evil, they're bad. And what they need to do is they need to become more moral. They need to start acting good. And if, and if we would just start acting good, then society would be better. That's not true. That's not true. Because the problem with society isn't that society's bad. The problem with humanity isn't that humanity's bad. The problem with humanity isn't that they are bad and need to be good. It's that they're dead and we need to be alive in Jesus Christ. It's not a morality problem. It's a spiritual problem, you see. And when you're saying, well, you know what, Um, I'm not going to take communion because I'm just not, I I sinned this week or whatever. You know what you're doing (laughs) is you're taking the Lord's name in vain. You're making it about what you do or what you did and not about what he does and what he did for you. You see, you're forgetting the covenant that says, even when you fail, God never fails. Even when you fail God, God never fails you. See, what's, what, what Jesus is inviting you to isn't just to know about God, but to experience him, to sense him. The Bible over and over again uses sensory language. It says it, 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 says it isn't enough for you to just know him, but, but the Bible says things like, come taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not enough for you just to know the Lord. It, it uses sense. come taste and see, sensory language. It talks about how the word is like honey on our lips. Sensory language, you see, when you eat the cracker and you drink the juice, it's sensory and you should be experiencing. And, and when you begin to experience God, when you begin to see the Lord's Supper in the right way, then all of a sudden you begin to experience his love, not just know his love, but experience it. And, there, and because of that, then the love of God outshines what people say. And then I'm not afraid anymore. Or the wisdom of God outtastes my own wisdom and I'm not anxious anymore. Or the mercy of God outtastes what my past says about me and I'm not ashamed anymore. You see what happens is is all of a sudden now I'm not trying to come and meet up your expectations and this person's expectations and I have to try to make a name for myself and all of a sudden I have to make sure that I'm good and I've done all this religious stuff to make sure I'm okay with God. No, 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 no. When I take the bread and I take the juice, when I eat the cracker and I drink the wine, whatever it is, when I do those things, what I'm doing is I'm coming before God and I'm saying I'm not worthy, but because of the blood and the death of Jesus Christ, I can be here. It's not about a religious beliefs just to keep your nose clean. Your life changes when you take on his name. Because one day, for everybody that's in Christ, we'll all be feasting at the wedding feast. We'll all end up there because he's our bridegroom. Because watch this, he doesn't just offer us powerful sensation, but complete reception. He does not just offer us powerful sensation but complete reception. How dare he do this? How dare he? What, that audacity of him. Do you realize what he's saying? See, see, when he says, I'm the king and you're the subject, I'm the shepherd and you're sheep, in every case when he says that, when he says, I'm king, when he says, I'm the king, what's that doing? That's telling us something about not just him, but about us, Right? When he says, I'm the shepherd, that's not just telling us something about him. It's telling us something about us, right? That you're sheep. It's telling us something about us. When he says, I'm the groom, what is this saying about us? When Jesus has the audacity to say, I'm the groom, do you know what he's saying about us? This is what he's saying. He's saying, I'm ravished with you. I can hardly stand it. I want to run down the aisle to you like the father to the prodigal son. I want to run after you because I love you. He promises complete reception as his bride. He says, we're his bride. You are his body. You are his body. You are his people. We are his people. And he's showing us a new way to be human, a new society, a new community. And here's where we end, number three, a covenant community. See, for both sacraments, baptism and communion, they're not done in isolation, are they? Right, right. Yeah. Because when you are saved, God does not just save you from something, but he saves you into something as well. When you are saved, he doesn't just save you from something, Write this down, but he saves you into something as well. Do you see that? In other words, he's not just called you out of darkness, but he's called you into light. He's not just called you out of the world, but he's called you into this church. Christ causes us to realize that it isn't just about me, but it's about us. You have to understand that on Judgment Day, when we stand before the Lord, it's not just me being presented as an individual, but it's us being presented as his bride. It's about this community, you see. This covenant community. Worshiping together. Because this was meant to be done together. There's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity we're presented as a community. As broken and as ugly, as sinful as we are. As difficult as it is to imagine that. Some nights you can't even sleep. You're just stressed and worried always feeling like you have to keep up with somebody, impress somebody, always thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow. Some of you are worried. Will the treatment work? Will my kid come back to Christ? Will I be signing divorce papers next week? Dealing with real situations and trying to figure it out trying to understand what God has next for you. We all deal with that. We all go through that. But we don't do it by ourselves. We do it in community. And we're presented in community. So when we gather at the Lord's table, when we take communion, it's a family meal. And you know what's great about this? Is that there's always room at the table for one more. There's always room at the table for one more. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to you, ask you to stand to your feet. and We're actually going to do something a little different this morning. We're getting ready to take communion. And um, if you are a Christian, in other words, to take communion, you don't have to be a member of Inspire, but you do have to be a member of the body of Christ. And so if you are a member of the body of Christ, if you proclaim Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then we invite you to the Lord's table this morning. If you're not, but you want to be, can I say this? There's always room at the table for one more. If something's been pulling at your heart this morning and, and maybe it's been a while for you, and something's tugging you to come and, 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 and give your heart to Jesus Christ, then it, all you have to really do is, is repent, confess that you're a sinner in need of a savior, which we all are, repent of those sins, and say, Lord, I might not know exactly what this is gonna look like or what all this means, but what I do know is that I need you, God. And I want you to be Lord of my life and turn to him. You could do that right now. And if you do, we'd love to invite you to the Lord.